This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. All right, we're talking about the victory of the Church of Jesus Christ. It's, it's a wonderful topic, but it's also one that is vexing and... In some respects, ephemeral. It seems like uh, the victory itself, at least, not the topic, um, is one that you say, yeah, yeah, yeah? Is it really? Is, is there a victory? We're told there is. There are many chapters and verses in Scripture which define the, the victory to one degree or another. But in terms of realizing it, experiencing it, it's not something that many of us have tasted, at least to the degree we wish we would, and to the degree that we think Scripture promises we will. And so Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you are the rock. It's when he says to him that he's holding the keys of the kingdom. He says, you are the rock. And on this, on this rock, I will establish my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that is a statement of the victory of the church. But I want us this, this afternoon to go to a chapter where I believe, and I hope I will convince you, Christ gives his own description of the triumph of the church at length and gives to us an understanding of what that victory looks like so that we're prepared for it. This is a chapter that occurs in all three of the synoptics. It's one of those things that all Matthew, Mark, and Luke all speak about and tell. And it's called the, the Olivet Discourse. I'm going to look at it with you this afternoon from Mark 13. I'd like to read the entire chapter as we, as we seek to understand the nature of the victory of the Bride of Christ. This is the Word of God. As he was going out of the temple, that is Christ, and this is on Tuesday of the week of his passion, of his death. In other words, just a few days from his trial and three days from his death. One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And actually, the word wonderful is added or great, if it's put that way, rendered that way in your translation. And it says, what stones, what buildings, whoa, look at this. And of course, they're marvelous. But Jesus responds to this disciple not with words of admiration or words that acknowledge the greatness of the sight before him, but with words that, that puncture the balloon of this man. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? And there he does say mega buildings, great buildings. Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, in other words, they've left the temple and they've gone across to the other side, and they're sitting on the Mount of Olives looking across the valley at the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Notice what is distinct about these four. Peter and James, John and Andrew, all right? Anyone know what, what unifies these four? Two sets of brothers, right? Two sets of brothers, and they're the ones who are sitting talking to Jesus. And there's a critical mass if you're with your brother and serving the Lord. And so it's the two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, were questioning him privately, and they said to him, 
tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are, are going to be fulfilled. And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying I am he and will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the morning, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert, be on the alert. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that we'll, we will be on the alert, that we will read the signs, and that we will be prepared for the, the great triumph of the bride of Christ, that we will take part in it, that we will enjoy it, that we will live in faith in it and that that victory will characterize our lives and our church. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen. 
Jesus is leaving the temple complex, I said, on Tuesday of the week of his death when an unnamed disciple, his name left out, I, I believe, out of, out, of, out of graciousness and charity so that we don't know who this, who this man is who's so foolish to remark on the greatness of the temple when he is in the presence of the one who the whole temple exists to portray. And so he's left unnamed because he's marveling at the temple rather than at the one who is greater than the temple, the one that the temple exists to worship. That comment leads to a rebuke by Christ who says, you see these great buildings, not one of them is going to be left on another. All the stones will be torn down. And then having crossed over the Mount, to the Mount of Olives, he's sitting with Peter, James, John, Andrew, and they begin to question him privately about the time and the prior signs of these events, which he has told them are going to come on, are going to come to pass, come, come in the near future, in, in, in their generation, some of them. Jesus goes on in the remainder of this chapter to speak of two great times of suffering, two great times of destruction, and they merge, and they are difficult at certain points to tell apart, but I I insist on what I believe is the plain rendering of Scripture, and I'll quote to you others who say it's the plain rendering of Scripture, others that you might want to heed even more than you would heed me, that these are two times and that they are plainly discrete, separate times. There are some who debate whether Mark, Mark 13 and, and the parallel portions of Matthew and Luke speak of two great times of suffering and destruction preceding Christ's return or one. I want nothing to do with that kind of speculation. There are some who say, oh, this is all, all taken place. This is all transpired. It all took place at the time of 70 AD. In fact, they say Jesus, some of them, came back in 70 AD. That was his return. And uh, I'm with, with Calvin, who writes, this passage is improperly restricted by some to the destruction of the temple and the abolition of the service of the law. For it ought to be understood as referring to the end and the renovation of the world. Calvin says there are two times at work here. One is obviously the destruction of the temple, which was completed by 70 AD. Then he says, and the other thing that's in view, and the other thing that is, is warned about, is the end of the world. The end and the renovation, the making new of the earth. J.C. Ryle says this chapter is full of prophecy, Prophecy of which part has been fulfilled and part remains to be fulfilled. Two great events form the subject of this prophecy. One is the destruction of Jerusalem and the consequent end of the Jewish dispensation. The other is the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the winding up of the state of things under which we now live. Now, we may not know exactly how to cast the lines and make the divisions between these two times. Many of us think that they sort of weave together in the center and you can only discern the, the, with clarity the separate times, the beginning and the end, and that there's sort of a mixture, and that the middle events are, are, are very much alike between the destruction of the temple and the ultimate renovation of the world. But it is clear, at least, that by verse 26, when Jesus says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory... That the transition from the first event, the destruction of the temple that took place in 70 AD, to the end of time and the renovation of the world is complete. 
And so by verse 26, what we have in view is not the destruction of the Jewish system, but we have the renovation of the world, which is the great triumph of the church. It is the, all things being made new. It is the church in, in her militancy over in her, in her final triumph. The church triumphant, no, no longer militant. And so we find in this chapter Christ's own portrayal, his own prophecy of the ultimate victory of his bride. Now, that the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, is ultimately victorious is, I believe, not in dispute by anyone. It is the very definition of the kingdom of God that it is ultimately a victorious kingdom. Well, you would agree with this, I hope. That to the extent there is belief in a kingdom of God, it is of the very definition of that kingdom that it is the triumphant kingdom, that it is the lasting kingdom, that the king of that kingdom is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and that to be alive and a citizen of that kingdom is to ultimately be victorious. And so throughout Scripture we find this. Wherever the, the, the kingdom of God is referred to, it's referred to as something that is a, a kingdom of victory. Psalm 2, the kings of the earth take their stand. This is out of the Old Testament, obviously. It's David speaking of that kingdom. Take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. In other words, the kings of the earth are saying, we're going to win. We're going to tear down God. But the one who is enthroned in heaven says, ha, ha. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger, terrifying them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Elsewhere in Psalms, David writes, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As, as wax melts before... As wax melts before... I was about to say, as max melts before the fire... <laughs> so let the wicked perish before God. Isaiah, now it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. All the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountains of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Everywhere you look in Scripture, when you find the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, coming in its power, it is victorious. It's defeating its foes. It's causing people to come running to it. It is powerful and victorious. Jesus himself telling Peter he is the rock on which the church will be established and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against that church foretells a great eventual victory of his bride. And it's not a passive victory, but it's active. It is not a... a a defensive victory, it's not waiting it out, it is offensive. How do we know that? Because gates are what we call fortifications. And fortifications are always defensive in nature. Gates are put in a wall. They're the access points to a city. The wall is defensive. Walls never move and attack. Gates never move and attack. And so when we're told that the church will prevail against the gates of hell... It's a clear statement that the church is on the offensive and that the gates of hell don't withstand it, cannot stand against the church of Jesus Christ. So it's not a passive victory. 
It's not a defensive outlasting. It is a, a true, honest victory. It's an offensive. It's in the face of the enemy, and it's victory. This is the beginning of faith, actually. Until you come to this point in this understanding, I'd say to you, you are not a child of God and you have not come to faith. Christianity is not a system of ethics, nor is it a system of moral behavior. Christianity is belief in a victory. The once and future victory of our King, Lord Jesus Christ. That is the essence of Christianity. Belief that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Belief that Jesus is coming back. All the morals, all the ethics flow from this belief that Jesus is victorious. But belief in the fact of the victory of Christ and through him the victory of his kingdom does not in itself make a Christian. You can believe that the kingdom of God is victorious and still not possess faith. We must believe in and pursue. We must sell ourselves out for a particular type of victory. For a triumph that is a very specific sort of triumph if we are to be followers of Jesus Christ. And you may say, come on, you're being too specific here, and I'm not. This is as true today as it was in the day of Jesus. What was the problem that we found throughout the Gospels in the day of Christ, the problem that kept people from believing in Jesus, the problem that kept people from following him? What was the nature of the problem? Well, I'll tell you. None of the people who rejected Jesus rejected him because they believed that the Messiah would not be powerful or victorious. Every Jew of the time of Christ believed that the Messiah was going to come, and when he came, he was going to be... They all believed in victory. They had read David. They had read Isaiah. They understood that there was to be victory. Every one of them convinced that there was going to be a victory. Every one of them. But the problem they had was with the nature of the victory. Their problem was not with the fact of the victory. They all believed in the fact of the victory. Their problem and what kept them from worshiping Jesus is that they did not like and would not accept the nature of the victory that Christ was coming to deliver. Everyone in Judaism believed that when the Messiah came, he'd be victorious, and through his victory, a victorious age for God's people would be inaugurated. But few of them were willing to accept everything that the Old Testament prophets taught about the nature of the Messianic victory, and fewer still were willing to embrace the Messiah as they saw, as they began to realize the nature of the victory he had come to purchase. Now, in the eyes of most the march of victory of Jesus Christ, which was ultimately the march that he took on the day of his trial to Golgotha, was a march of ignominy and of despair and defeat. They could not see victory in the march of Christ, in the triumph procession of our Savior. They didn't see it as victory. No victory in Calvary. As Christ was there on the cross bleeding, and as he was there dying, as his side was, was, was pierced, as his legs were broken, every time 
those blows landed on him, their hopes went down. Their hopes were dashed one step lower. They hoped, but their hope was for life, not death. They hoped, but they hoped that he would come down miraculously off the cross. They hoped. They hoped for the seven legions of angels that he had told them God would immediately put at his command if he called for them. They hoped, but not for this. As Jesus came closer to victory, his disciples came closer to despair. And nowhere is this lack of faith and this lack of understanding, this failure to achieve victory alongside their Messiah, more evident than in their despair, their utter despair and defeat when he breathed his last. As he commended his spirit to God, saying, it is finished, which also can be rendered, it is complete, it is complete, it's done. And gave up his spirit. You and I know he was victorious. The work was done. It was complete, finished. And so were his disciples. They were finished. They were in despair. There was no sense of victory in their spirits. It was defeat. Even the closest disciples, men who freely admitted that they had thought Jesus would usher in the kingdom of God, those 12, they were disturbed and dismayed in the aftermath of Calvary. Today, no one in Christendom doubts that the week of Christ's passion ended in victory. No true Christian has any doubt at all. It's the definition of a Christian that we believe that that, that, that week ended in victory, that the cross was victory, and that the resurrection was a vindication of that victory, God's declaration that my son has won. You can't be a Christian and deny this. This is the essence of Christian faith. But on that original Easter Sunday, the the risen Jesus found no one who actually believed his death had ever been any form of victory. Not his 12 disciples, not even hearing of the empty tomb from the women, not even having heard from Mary that She had seen Jesus in the garden outside of the tomb. Not even going to the tomb and seeing it empty with their own eyes, it was still defeat in their eyes. The day of Jesus' resurrection, a couple of the disciples were walking to Emmaus discussing the preceding events, these events that had so vexed them. When Jesus met them and walked unrecognized at their side on the road to Emmaus, they knew that Jesus had died They knew that the women had reported angels and an empty tomb. They knew that other disciples had seen also an empty tomb. They knew that the angels had said to the women at the tomb, the one you seek is alive. But they did not believe. They can't see the victory even when it's standing at their side and looking them in their face. We trusted, they say to Jesus, we had trusted that he was the one who would redeem Israel. We trusted that he was the one who was going to achieve the great victory. We trusted him. But it's been three days since he was crucified. I mean, look, his body is moldering in the grave. And, well, somewhere, you know, I mean, we don't know what's going on, but there's nothing happened that was good. They believe in a messianic victory. But they don't believe in the victory of Jesus. And by rejecting the victory that Jesus has achieved, they have 
rejected Jesus as Messiah. If they don't want the victory that the Messiah came to deliver, and they won't accept it, then what they have rejected is the Messiah himself. So he is victorious, but they are not. Their faith is in a victory that's been defined by their own minds. And because of this, when he rises and stands in their midst, they are blind to his victory as they are blind to him. They are outside that victory, defeated, because they have a false and unbiblical view of the victory of Christ. And still today, false views of the coming victory of Christ are one of the primary causes of defection from the cause of Christ, the primary reasons that churches have their lamps taken away from them, falling away from Christ and into error. The primary scourges of the church today, as much as false views of Christ's original victory, decimated the church and kept people from victory in his own day. How is the victory of Christ's kingdom misdefined today? Well... For many people, it's the fact that it's, it's not viewed as a victory at all, but they define defeat as victory. In other words, they say the church is not victorious. The church is suffering passively and just barely manages to eke it out to being saved at the end. This past week I was talking to a dear friend, an older lady, who, who I'm very close to in Southern California. And she was, she was talking about a number of things that had happened in her week. And then out of the blue, she said, oh, David, can you believe what the Supreme Court did? Can you believe it? She said, I'm just, I'm just so distraught by it, she said. She's, she's from California where Proposition 8 was, was initially passed. And so she was saying, I'm against this. And then she, she stopped and she said, she said, well, all we can do is wait for Christ's return. Which, of course, is true in a sense. It's very true. But in the sense that I think lay behind her statement, I believe what she said was quite untrue because it implied a powerlessness, a defeated church, a hopelessness that could only be redeemed by the return of Christ. In other words, her view is, well, I think we're just going to have failure, 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 defeat, 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 defeat. Then Christ will return. Then, when Christ returns, victory. The problem is, Scripture teaches us that the defeat of hell is the accomplishment of the church of Jesus Christ, not the victory of Christ himself. Now, of course, it's delegated through the church. But Scripture attributes the victory to the church rather than just to Christ. We are on the offensive. We as Christians, as the church, are victorious. We are not rescued from defeat. We do not die. The church is not extinct. It is not a dead organism by the time Christ returns. This view is opposed to faith. It denies the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory. It actually snatches defeat right out of the jaws of victory. 
And I tell you, children who grow up in homes where this is the view of the victory of the church is defeat, 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 powerlessness, impotency, powerlessness, impotency, only saved at the end by Christ's return. Children who grow up in homes and churches where this is taught end up despising the church and they go where they see there being real power. They always go to the world. They see the church as impotent. They see the church as lacking in power. They look, see the church as needing to be rescued. And they always go somewhere where they can have some real power. The children of these churches never, ever believe in the church. They're gone. Another view, almost the polar opposite of this first one, believes that the church's victory comes by the arm of flesh. Really, this is a story that my brother Tim began telling yesterday. He spoke of the beginning of the evangelical movement, the parachurch movement, and he said it came out of the fundamentalist movement in the early 2000s or uh, 1900s, the, that movement that led to so many denominations dividing and to so many new organizations being formed. It led people like my father not having a church home because he'd grown up in the, the mainline Presbyterian church. He saw it go liberal. He was at Wheaton College at the time, and he said, where do I go? What do I do? He'd been accepted at Princeton Seminary. He was going to go there and be a pastor, but he, he had no church to go to. And so he went into InterVarsity and became for 25 years an InterVarsity staff member. And, and what happened was that as these people left the church where they had been in fighting and where they'd seen such failure, they started these organizations like InterVarsity and Campus Crusade. They saw the techniques which they used, and they were sharp men and sharp young women back then. They were very sharp. They saw their techniques work. And InterVarsity grew and it had influence when their churches were dying, the churches they'd been a part of. And they became convinced they'd found the right way to do things. The parachurch blossomed. It learned marketing. It, it actually learned how to sell Jesus. And it had great success. It learned to attract the cool. It learned to attract the elite. It got the good-looking guys and the pretty girls. And it used them to win others. It was sophisticated in its approach to winning people. It did things well. It made mother churches, which insisted on caring for widows, the kinds of churches that, that Max was speaking of this morning, the churches that reek of authenticity because they're doing the things that a church should do. It made them look like dowdy old instruments of the past. They were busy taking care of widows, those old churches, those dowager churches, they were busy making issues with fornicating students instead of winning them to Jesus. And what actually happened is that at some point in the late 60s, early 70s, late 70s, the church started looking at the parachurch and saying, look, yeah, they're having success. They're not exercising the keys. Of the, they're not out disciplining kids for fornication. They're not having to spend their time on, on the nasty things that come when you take care of the, of the people who are constantly financially impoverished. They don't have to do that, you know? They're not doing these things, and they're winning people left and right. And the church began to say, maybe we should be a little bit more like the parachurch, not spending our time disciplining, not spending our time on on a broad spectrum of people. Maybe we should find particular neighborhoods where influential people live and we should start winning those who are like us, those who are attractive to others. 
And they began going at very specific demographics. And they stopped doing the negative things. And, you know, it worked for the church as well. And so what you had then was a parachurch church. And the church, which had at, once, at one time defined itself as opposed to the parachurch, became the parachurch. And it started acting like the parachurch. And churches doing this grew. They had no discipline. They had no calls to repentance. But they had big sort of corporate office uh, buildings that, that had no offense. They didn't look like dowdy old church buildings. They looked cool. And they marketed Jesus well. And they created an image, an image that was effective and attractive. And then they invited people in. And they didn't bother them with things like offerings. And they did not bother them with things like repentance. And they didn't bother them by telling them that they were going to discipline them. They had to submit to the discipline of the church. They didn't use the keys of the kingdom. They didn't do these kinds of things. And really, in the eyes of many people today, the very best churches going are the churches which look most like Apple Computer. You know? Their building is like Apple's new building. Their leader is like Steve Jobs. He defines cool. You know? And it's an aspirational thing. No one wants to use an Apple because it's better than a, than a Windows machine. All right? I know I'm offending some of you. But I've used them both. Ten years each on both, you know? And I'm, I'm telling you, they're about the same. Why do people want apples? Well, it's because of the aspiration. You know, I want to be that. I want that. I want that defining me. And churches have learned this. They give you an aspirational image and say, this is who we are. Notice how many churches that are the, the cool churches are constantly telling you who they are and what their passions are. We are this. We are this. It's really hard in a church like Clearnote or in a church like Christ the Word to say, this is who we are. Yeah? I'll go, I think to myself, I, my, my son came up to me and said that one of his marketing professors who goes to a seeker-sensitive church in town had asked him when they met each other in the, uh, the local um, um, Home Depot. So what's your, your church's niche? And Nathan said, he went, huh. <laughs> but these churches, they can tell you their niche. They have a niche. Apple suggests to you that you're being invited into an inner circle. The Illuminati by owning their product, by allying yourself with them. This is Apple, and this is so many churches today. Come in. We have this aura. We are this. They're constantly, we are this. We are this. But there's no power. You say, yes, there's power. Well, there's no power, because no matter the mystique of Apple, what is true about Apple? Apple is selling. You understand? Apple has to sell. Apple does not control your wallet. And where does the power lie? Well, in economic terms, power lies with the cash, right? So Apple says, we are this. We are powerful. We are cool. We are this. But it's generating an aspirational image 
and it has no power to bring you into it. It can only say, you want this, you want this, but you're the one with the power because you're the one with the wallet. And you have to buy it. They are selling. They're not buying. And power always lies in the hands of the buyer. Now, this is not the victory of Christ's bride. Christ is not selling himself to the world. And his churches that truly love him and understand his victory are not selling Christ to the world. Christ is buying, and he's buying children for his father, and the power is in his hand because he has the payment. They don't. Choice is in his hand. And his bride is not selling but buying. Wealth is in our pocket and power is in our hands. The church holds the keys of the kingdom. The church has the authority and power over life and death, heaven and hell. What we bind on earth is bound in heaven. What we loose on earth is loosed in heaven or in hell. So what does the victory of Christ's bride, the church, look like as it's portrayed here by Christ? I want to spend the remainder of our time just noticing what it looks like, and I want you to look at three verses in this chapter. Look with me at verses 20, 22, and 27. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. In other words, the whole time frame, the schema of the, the temporal schema of the end of times and his return is predicated on what? The elect. Understand? It's all based on what the elect can handle and their needs. 20, verse 22. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Notice Jesus here is speaking of his, of his children. And he could say, my disciples... He could say those who are my followers. He could say anything he wants. But at this point, he routinely refers to those who will be there at that time of victory, who are blind to him at that point, as the elect, the elect, the elect, verse 27. And then he will send forth, Jesus is speaking of the Son of Man coming. He's speaking of himself here. He says, then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. So he says, at that point, when I come back, it's not, a, it's not war. At that point, I'm bringing back my elect, those who are in heaven and those at the farthest ends of the earth, and they're all going to come together. It's the victory march. It's the triumphal procession. It's not the war. Actually, in verse 20, Jesus emphasizes the elect by saying, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose... He shortened the days. Literally, it's for the sake of the chosen whom he chose. He says, for the sake of the chosen whom he chose. What are you? Well, you're part of the chosen. And why are you part of the chosen? It's, it's circular, isn't it? It's, it's redundant. It's almost a tautology. You're, you're, you're chosen. You know why you're chosen? Because God chose you. For the sake of the chosen whom he chose. And when you say something twice like that, you're trying to make it real clear. Who are you? You're not the choosing, right? <laughs> Thank you. I heard you, but I wasn't going the way that my brother would go or Dave Carell would go. I, I'm going to answer it, all right? Who, who are you? You're, you're not the choosing ones. You're the chosen ones. You're the ones who are bought. 
You're not the one selling. You're the chosen ones whom he chose. He chose you. And so you're chosen one. The victorious bride of Christ is the elect. The chosen ones. Chosen by God. Now it's obvious that the story here, I mean, let's not deny it, is one of trials and dangers, false teachers, even death. Many perils, and they're great perils, so great in fact that God tones it down, shortening the period of it for the sake of the elect. It's clearly not a picture of Apple Computer, highest market value corporation on earth when its shares were selling at least for $700 each. People mooning over his every new product and every announcement. No one with earthly sight looking at the church, this triumphant, victorious church, the chosen who were chosen, no one would give a plugged nickel for a share in that corporation at the time that is being referred to here. They're going to say, no, 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 thanks. This doesn't look like victory. This doesn't look like much. Opponents of the gospel and of Christ are so numerous and so powerful that they would draw away even the elect, verse 22, if that were possible. But the picture of victory is a picture of election. Those days are cut short because of the elect. Christ's disciples to survive all the deceit and the falsehood and the counterfeit Christ of that era because they are chosen. And when he returns, he sends his angels throughout the world and then throughout the heavens and says, I want my chosen ones. I want them all right here. Bring them together. Now this has such great implications for our understanding of victory, for the faith that we're to have as Christians. Why do the elect triumph? Well, it's that old tautology again. They triumph because they're the elect triumph because they're elect. The chosen are chosen for victory because they're chosen. You understand this? Not because of who they are, but because of whom they're chosen by. They win by being chosen. A word here in the Greek that's translated elect, and it's sort of a cognate, it's the same word in Greek as Hebrew, except we take one letter out, is eklego. It's also the same as eclectic. That's better cognate even. It's even more similar. Eclectic, which means, you know, that's the way he is. He's eclectic because he chooses. This is God. God's eclectic. He's choosing. He chooses. You know? It's the idea behind even the word in English, eclectic. It's like, well, that's what he wants. You win. You're part of the winning team because you were eclego, called out. Called out. That's what it means. Out call. Called out. Imagine two teams forming up for, for a, a, base, a, a basketball team to pick up in, in a playground somewhere. And you're, you're a mensch when it comes to basketball. You just, and by mensch, I mean like the Yiddish speak of it. I don't know if you have some different name, but it means you're just, you're a putz. You're not good at basketball. And uh, you never were. And you're being called out to be on a team and you think, oh, what am I going to do? I, I've never won at basketball. I never won at anything. You're flat. You're slow. You're clumsy. You're hopeless. For some reason, this game is important to you. You want to win, right? One of the two captains that's calling out members for the teams is Michael Jordan. 
and you say, pick me, Michael. I want to win. Pick me. You know, it's not what you're bringing to the game. It's who you're chosen by. And this is the case here in Scripture. It's not what you bring to the game. It's that you were chosen by God. Chosen by Christ. You're going to win because you're put on the side of the greatest ever. This is so important to remember as Christians in the churches of Jesus Christ around the world. We are nothing. Really, we're nothing. 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 No power. No glory. No way of pleasing God. But it doesn't matter. That's not our measure because we're the ones who are chosen. We've been chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son. And so we win because we're united with Christ. We don't win by becoming like the world. We lose if we become like the world. We don't win by marketing. We aren't sellers of Jesus. Christ, who is our brother and our captain in this battle, is a buyer. He's buying slaves. He's the authority. He's the wealthy one. He has the treasure. We call people to him. We don't sell him to people. He is the authority. All power is in his hands. We call the world to him. We don't sell him to the world. We don't market him. Never. Why? Because we're elect. And election is power. We have that power even in the darkest hour. Election, election is surprising. Election is so surprising. It, it, it's like a bolt of lightning in the midst of a dark and yeah, stormy night. And you're, you're there and it's dark and suddenly, boom, and you see everything for a split. It transforms the universe. This is what election is. Most people don't really believe in election. I believe in it. Tim believes in it. The church we grew up in doesn't believe in it in many ways, but we do. Many years, for many years, whenever I'd go back to the town where Tim and I grew up in and go to the church, and I'd see old friends, old, old, old members of the church who hadn't seen me for some years, and they'd learn that I was a pastor, or they'd probably have heard it. They all knew that Tim was a pastor, you know? These people would say to, say to me, whatever happened to you and Tim? You know, why, why are you the conservative pastors? What happened? Why? Because they knew us as the rebels. They knew us as the, well, me at least, as the kid who smoked pot on the, on the, on the high school retreat, you know, and, and, and brought others down to the cabin to say, hey, you want to try a joint? They, they remember that. They, they couldn't think that I would end up a pastor. And Tim, man, I tell you, they had a much harder time believing that Tim was a pastor than me. <laughs> they could never believe that the two of us, who they'd viewed as such awful rebels, in Tim's case, long-haired, pot-smoking in my case, that these rejects had become the God-fearing pastors when so many other children of the church who had appeared staid and dutiful in the years that we looked like rebels were now far from the Lord. Well, what's the answer? The answer is, boom, election. Yeah? People don't believe in election. They say they do, but they don't believe in it. They believe in gig lines. That's what most people believe in. You know what a gig line is? I was introduced to it by a friend in my church. It's, it's that line where... You start with a tight collar, buttoned, 
and squarely in the middle of the Adam's apple. A tie that's perfectly centered between the collars. Coming down, coming directly to the point of the belt. Properly tied, not short with the back portion lingering beneath it, not too long where it looks like you, you're trying to cover for a broken zipper. Just perfect. It's a shirt that is buttoned and tightly tucked. It's a belt whose buckle is exactly halfway between the front of the fly and the placket with the buttons of the shirt. It is, that's the gig line, everything being proper and in order. And of course, along with it goes a navy blazer and khaki pants, right? This is the, this was the, this was the, the, the election, the, the, the belief in power that characterized the church that Tim and I grew up in. They believed in gig lines, dutiful children, pants creased, everything lined up, perfectly straight, rectitude living in a man's own clothing, rectitude of clothing. They had raised gig line children. They had raised children who were raised to look good and to keep their act together, and they couldn't understand how Tim and David, who had been these rebels, ended up having gig lines when they turned into their late 20s and early 30s when their own kids had gone off way off. I don't really mean gig lines, but we had become principled men and had become repentant. They couldn't figure it out. And what they didn't understand is that my mother and my father, Tim's mother and father, never ever focused on things like gig lines. They didn't care about gig lines. They wanted their children to be regenerate. They wanted us to be born again. And man can't be born again. With man, it's impossible. That's why it's election. Only God can do it. They didn't believe in regeneration. They didn't believe in election. It was human power. And their children went as far as they could by human power, and then they fell flat. Whereas our parents said to us, you can't do it. And you're wicked, but you must trust God. And they trusted God for us, and they saw the power of election. This is the picture here of the triumph of the church. Everyone's looking at her, and everyone's saying, she's hopeless. Look at her. She doesn't have her gig line together. She doesn't look like Apple Computer. She doesn't have aspirational status in the eyes of the world. No one wants to be part of her. Look at her. She's sad. Everyone's mocking the church. And then suddenly in the darkness of the night when things are terrible, kazam, pow, and lightning. Suddenly revealed before the eyes of a wandering and a wandering human race is this beautiful bride of Christ. And they're saying, where did she come from? How did she get there? I don't remember her being like that. The powers of the earth that have been allied against them say, oh, the Spirit has fallen. It's like the day of Pentecost. These weaklings whose Savior was killed, just a handful of them in an upper room of no great note. And then the Spirit falls on them and they go out and they start speaking and people hear them speaking in strange tongues, their own tongues, but tongues that they hadn't known before. They start listening, and then Peter gets up and begins preaching, this, this fisherman. And he declares the glory of Christ. He doesn't sell him. 
he cuts the people. He takes a sword to the people, cuts them with the word of God, says, you killed Jesus, leaves them bleeding, and then says, now there's medicine. There's the hope. He doesn't sell Jesus. He cuts the people so that they want what Jesus has, so that they'll go running to it. They cry, what must we do to be saved? You understand at the point on the day of Pentecost when the people yelled to Peter, what must we do to be saved? They're saying, they're saying, I need to be bought. I can't do it. Buy me, Jesus, buy me. Peter says, repent and be baptized. And they repent and they're saying, Jesus, buy me, buy me. And in a day, 3,000 are added out of the blue. Bang, shazam, election. This is the triumph of the church. The triumph of God's chosen people, of God's elect. What they are isn't apparent in them precisely because the power belongs to God, but it is real power and it wins real battles. It may look defeated and impotent, but that is never the case. Brothers and sisters, we are not defeated. We are never defeated. It is impossible for this bride of Christ to lose. It doesn't matter how many people blow out because of being disciplined. It can't lose. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it's written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This great, powerful statement of God's protection of us, is in the midst, what, of of calm fields, bucolic afternoons out in the park? No, it's in the midst of battle and people hating us and coming after us. And the promise is, who's going to have victory over us? Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? This tribulation? Never. Never. Just as it is written, for your sake... We are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It's written of Christ, but it's also written of us. You understand? We're filling up in our bodies the sufferings of Christ. And we say, I'm being defeated. (laughs) Was it defeat for Christ to suffer? Was it defeat for Christ to go to Calvary? You think you're being defeated because you're suffering? You think you're impotent? Because it isn't going real well for you right now, at least in the eyes of the world? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A promise to the elect. 
I want to close by saying two more things. One is, what does this kingdom look like? This kingdom that is, that is a kingdom of the elect. It looks like something that, that comes out of nowhere and suddenly is. It's like election, regeneration. Once you were nothing. And a moment later, you're something and powerful because God has given you his spirit. This is the kingdom. It looks like nothing. It looks like nothing. It looks like it's not prospering. It looks like it's failing. It looks like Christ on the cross, right? It looks like Christ on the cross, defeated, down. And then suddenly, bang! And it was as Jesus died that the centurion said, surely this was the Son of God. He didn't say it while he lived. It was when he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Do you think being defeated in the eyes of the world is weakness? Suffering is weakness? Here is the victory of the kingdom of God. In Isaiah 66, last chapter of Isaiah, speaking of the end of times, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and he said, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But they'll be put to shame. In other words, there are people mocking us, saying, oh, let your Lord support you. Let him do good things for you. But they will be put to shame, those who mock the church, those who mock the children of God. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. And what does that voice say? It says, before she travailed, she brought forth. In other words, travailed, Old Testament language for labor. Before she even went into labor, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? Can we go from utter defeat to tremendous, stupendous victory overnight in a second? Does it happen? Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? But as soon as Zion, the kingdom of God, travailed, went into labor, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I, who gives delivery, shut the womb, says the Lord God? The minute he says it, it's done. This is the victory of the church. Stupendous and immediate. Not there one moment, at least in the eyes of men, and the next moment there in full color, fully grown. This is the victory of the bride of Christ. So what does this demand of us? Well, it demands that you read the signs of the times, doesn't it? I mean, you're supposed to look around you, and I am supposed to look around, and we're supposed to say, hey, I see these things. But when was the last time you looked around and saw anything that had to do with the victory of the church or the return of Jesus Christ? Really? What does Jesus say? He says it, be on the alert. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Be on the alert. I suspect that many of you 
are more alert for the signs of a blemish on your cheek than you are for the advent, the second advent, the return of Jesus Christ. You're more awake to the signs of a pimple, to the initial swelling of your skin, than you are to the return of your Savior, the great, imminent joy of the Christian life. I think more of you are, are aware of, of and, and prepared for and thinking about and alert to your retirement, even though it may be 20 years off than you are to the return of Jesus Christ. You see more signs of the aphids on your roses than you see of the kingdom of God coming close. You see the little, that little sheen that always accompanies the advent of, of aphids. You say, oh, my roses have aphids. I'd better get out there with an insecticide because you see that, that shiny surface on the leaves. But you hear of the Supreme Court ruling that homosexuality is really a basic human right and a matter of human dignity, and you don't see anything of Christ in it. You don't see any victory in that, do you? You've been cast down. You haven't looked to heaven and said, thank you, God. We get to bear the name of Christ. Thank you, God. We're seeing the return of Christ. We're seeing these things. I'm awake to the signs. We're not awake to Christ. Remember a time when I was first married, for many, several years, I was almost 30 when I got married, when, when Cheryl would leave and she'd take the kids with them, I'd be happy because it was like I was single again. And, uh, oh, I, was, I just loved it when Cheryl would go. Probably two, three years. But then there came the time that Cheryl went to Chicago, took her kids to see my mother and her parents, and I had changed. And I knew she was coming home that night. And as the day went by, I went, I can't live, you know? I was actually physically hungry for it. I'm not I'm meaning sexually. I mean, I, mean I, I wanted to see her. I wanted her back. And I was going so crazy that I left the parsonage that we lived in at the time, and I knew she'd be coming from the entrance off the uh, turnpike, which was 40 miles west in Wausau, and I knew she'd be coming. So I said, I don't know when she's going to arrive. It could be any time between now, 7 o'clock and midnight. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out and I'm going to walk down Airport Highway. And if I have to walk 40 miles before she shows up, I'm going to at least be doing something. And I remember I got about two miles down the road and she drove and saw me on the side of this road and pulled over. And, and I wanted my wife. I was looking for her. I, I remember as a kid going to the airport. And standing at the end of that, what is it called, the skyway that comes off the plane, where the people walk up onto the ramp, onto, into the terminal. I remember standing there, and there'd always be some kids there, and they'd be looking for their father. We'd be looking for our father, waiting for him, waiting to see our dad. What a joy it will be when the, the Savior of our souls, the one who bought us, when we look and we say, I think he's coming. I see him. Not, not perfectly, not yet, but I see him. He's there. This is the victory of the bride of Christ. And this is how Christians live. They live for that victory. They're alert. They hunger for it. Hunger for Christ.
Even so, Lord, come quickly. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Savior who has bought us. And we pray that our confidence will be in him rather than us. And that our churches will not be sellers, but buyers of the lost. And that our faith will be in a Lord who is victorious. Call all those who are here this evening. Elect everyone. Choose them, Father, for your team on your side. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.